0: Welcome to episode 22 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France.
1: And I'm Doc Shauna Springer.
0: And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows so far, you can find them at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. There's a lot of focus on veteran suicide, but this podcast is looking to address all aspects of the military-affiliated population, and that, of course, includes talking about where it all began, those who are currently serving. Today's guest is looking at suicide prevention for service members in the Department of Defense. Shauna, what can you tell us about our guest?
1: Yes, Dr. Karen Orvis, the Director of the Defense Suicide Prevention Office, joins us this week on the Seeking a Military Suicide Solution podcast. Before serving in this capacity, she was the Director of the Transition to Veterans Office, where she led efforts within the Transition Assistance Program, also known as TAP. As she puts it, this experience opened her eyes to the fact that the time just after military discharge is associated with an elevated risk for suicide. When she served as the acting principal director of military community and family policy, she heard many stories about the personal impact of suicide that she says have influenced her desire to focus on this issue. When I asked her for a specific example of a story she had heard that had personal impact, she expressed this view. It was heartbreaking to read about tragedies on a daily basis, but I'd rather not pull out any specific example because I don't think any one situation can capture The nature of these losses. Dr. Orvis has a big job with a large scope of practice in her role as dispo director, and today she shares information about the latest initiatives she's spearheading in this capacity.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, Again, we're trying to get a wide range of points of view on the show, and definitely. The person that's running suicide prevention for the Department of Defense is definitely someone we wanted to talk to. So we'll get into the conversation. We'll come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. So the Defense Suicide Prevention Office is the organization that oversees suicide prevention efforts for the entire Department of Defense, so no small task. But definitely like to hear from your point of view and in your experience, what kind of things are working when it comes to impacting suicide, specifically in the active military and the families?
2: Thank you for that question. And, and first of all, I just want to say it's a pleasure to be talking with you today. In terms of what's working within our military community, you know, the DOD is undergoing several efforts right now. But two, I'd want to highlight from my seat as the director of the Defense Suicide Prevention Office would first be our internal and our external collaborations as something that's working. And the second being our comprehensive public health approach to suicide prevention. So in terms of the first one, our internal and external collaborations, I am a strong believer that collaborative work across the public and private sector is absolutely integral to our success. And we do that on a lot of different levels. So for example, we do it at a national level in terms of collaborating closely with other federal agencies, and we also work with the White House regularly. So for example, we have a very strong collaboration with the Department of Veterans Affairs, and we do that for a variety of initiatives and different working groups. One example I could give you is this past August, we partnered on the biennial VA DOD Suicide Prevention Conference, and that's really focused on sharing best practices, evidence-informed, the latest research Specifically for suicide prevention for our military and our veteran communities. The president also, I think you would be aware, signed two executive orders in the past couple years focused specifically on suicide prevention for our transitioning service members and our veterans. And we have certainly been very involved with that, with VA and other agencies as well. At work, closely with nonprofits and other organizations. So it's really all of those partnerships and collaborations I I believe are fundamental to supporting our military community in this this effort. So that's the first thing that I think is working. Uh, The second thing that I would say is working very well is our comprehensive public health approach to suicide prevention. And how I would describe the public health approach and just highlight a few things that resonate for me is First of all, it's a multifaceted approach. It's looking at trying to reduce the suicide risk for all individuals and looking at what are the various risk factors that we can help reduce and what are the protective factors that we can build up. It's also focusing on not only people that are at risk, perhaps at high risk for suicide, and how do we identify those individuals and get them into to care and have support, but it's also getting far left in prevention it's looking at the entire population and it's saying, how can we uh, build problem solving and coping skills? How can we increase financial stability? How can we improve relationships and connections among people? We know those are protective factors that are very important in terms of reducing an individual's risk for suicide. For us, our approach is based on the defense strategy for suicide prevention. And that also aligns with the CDC's Seven Broad Evidence-Informed Strategies for Suicide Prevention. So we have uh, within the DOD a number of initiatives that are already ongoing that are capturing that well-rounded public health approach, but we also have a number of pilots that we're doing right now. And I think that's one, one thing that's working for us as well that I'll put as a subset within that public health approach is we are taking promising practices that are out there in the civilian sector that seem to be working in terms of reducing suicide risk factors, increasing protective factors. And we're testing them in our military community. We're we're evaluating them to make sure, are they indeed effective in this population before we consider expanding them more broadly? And just a few highlights, we're doing evidence-informed pilots right now in terms of increasing help-seeking, in terms of mean safety initiatives, and also increasing coping and everyday life skills. And happy to talk about any of those
0: there's this common thread that goes through all of it is collaboration. You wouldn't have the initiatives that you're trying in these pilot programs if you didn't collaborate. And really, it's collaborating at the community level. And, you know, what's necessary here in El Paso County in Colorado Springs, for example, with our large military population and associated with the Department of Defense civilians and contractors and so on, would be very different than say 29 Palms or Fort Polk, Louisiana, right? And so that collaboration at the national level, I think is very important, but that also informs these practices. But also the public health approach is important because it gets, like you said, way, way upstream. And in my experience, a lot of people wanna know what are the signs and people are thinking about trying to stop somebody from harming themselves in the next 24 to 48 hours.
2: Yes, I I agree. That's a piece of it, right? So that's one piece of the puzzle of how do we identify those folks that truly are at risk and getting them the help and the care and the resources right away. But that's, that's one sector, that's one of seven that we need to do. And as you're describing, even within the military, different populations and how we need to be able to test and see, is this one program or initiative, it might be effective with our younger service members, but maybe not more for our more senior service members. So we're being very thoughtful and rigorous in terms of how we're evaluating these new things that we're considering to put in place more broadly to make sure they will be effective either for subpopulations that we might be interested in trying to target in, in particular, but then also more broadly. And I, I think about one in particular, uh, which I'm really excited about right now, it's it's focused on our junior service members in particular, and it's teaching it's an interactive training program that's teaching everyday life skills and by that I mean rational thinking, problem solving, emotion regulation. How do I identify how I'm feeling? you know label it and be able to, to use that and not have my emotions control me. And how do I use those everyday skills to handle those common life challenges that we all have, relationship challenges, financial challenges, parenting challenges. And getting those skills early on in your career so you have a chance to practice, build them. But then also as you continue to progress in your career, you'll be able to mentor and provide that training to your more junior members that are within your leadership.
0: You know, and I can see you definitely coordinating this across the number of services because um, a Lance Corporal in the Marines probably has a lot similarities cognitively to a PFC in the Army, right? These young service members. I'm thinking as you're talking about this, establishing it across populations or subcultures, targeted interventions for special forces, Green Berets, and Navy SEALs is probably much more likely because of the special operations background rather than just targeting something for one particular service or the other.
2: I think that's a fair comment. I think the services certainly have their unique cultures and their unique history and their populations are different from one another. And we can consider the Marine Corps, for instance, and over 75 percent are first-term service members, very young and junior. And if we compare perhaps to Air Force, we would see there's a broader variety of age ranges within our service there. So those are things we're taking into account. But I also think that within the various initiatives that we're doing or when we're looking more broadly at what works for suicide prevention because many of those things are getting left of prevention. As you were saying, it's not identifying the individual immediately in crisis and, and making sure they have the appropriate care and resources. It's making sure that that doesn't happen in the first place and many of those things, while the nuance of how they're talked about or how they might be uh, couched exactly uh, may, may vary for, for the population. Some of those fundamental things that work, we believe will work in the military as well, but. We are doing these pilots so we don't necessarily just implement broad scale and then later find out, oh, that was not effective. We want to make sure we're being efficient and effective up front and bringing in those research and evidence-based practices to, to formulate what we do to support that broader public health approach.
0: You know, and this is something that actually I think is emerging here is that we know that one size does not fit all. One size does not even fit all in the Marine Corps, if you're talking about ground versus air wing or, you know, in, in just within subcultures of these services. But also there are some commonalities that also have to apply across all. So we need to have this framework that's also flexible and adaptable, that has some basic components but can be implemented. This idea of one size fits all, we were talking before you start about some of the misconceptions around suicide prevention. That's one I believe I've seen that uh, has been in the past is one size does fit all. And we know that really doesn't work.
2: Absolutely. that's a—I should add that to my list of misconceptions. I think that's probably a, a perfect number one misconception is we just need to find the the solution. Why haven't we found the solution? And the reality is, as you say, there is not going to be a single solution. Suicide is incredibly complex. There is So many factors that influence for individuals and across individuals that we need to have that that broad approach to be able to really capture it from all angles. In terms of other misconceptions, I find that there are several misconceptions about suicide and and some specific to military suicide that hold us back at, at times and hinder our efforts. And there, are, there were five in my mind, but now I'm going to add that as the sixth one, I think. And I'd love to be able to just talk about some of those, probably the most fundamental one in my mind, which is true not only of the military population, but really generally across our nation. And it's this misconception that if we talk about suicide with someone that might be at high risk for suicide, that may put thoughts in their head that they didn't have or may lead them into a behavior that they would not have otherwise have done. And we know that's simply not true. We know that by talking to an individual that may be at risk, it gives them the opportunity to express those thoughts and those feelings that they might be holding secret and to help them get support and resources. So I think that's one critical thing is, We need to not be afraid to have those conversations, be afraid to say the wrong thing. We need to be engaging in those. So that would be the the first misconception. A second that is specific to military suicide is that deployment increases your risk for suicide. And in fact, we know that is not true. We have much research and, and data within the Department of Defense as well that shows that deployment, whether we're talking about combat experience, we're talking about length of deployment, number of deployments, it's not associated with suicide risk for service members generally. In fact, this is often, I think, a surprising data point when I share this with some folks, but we know from our DOD suicide event report that comes out each year that approximately 40% of our service members that die by suicide have never been deployed across their entire military career. So again, it is a factor for some individuals, so we want to take it seriously and look into it. But if we are only focusing on that as a factor, we're missing so many other things that we need to be tracking and uh, accounting for in our broad suicide prevention strategy. Another misconception, this is number three, is that if you remove access to one lethal mean of suicide, That someone at risk for suicide is simply going to replace it with another method. This really holds us back. And I honestly, we've seen this as part of our research efforts and our piloting efforts. And as we're developing initiatives and programs in the DOD, we still see and, and still hear this from service members and family members that that misconception of, well, why does it matter, for instance, if I safely store a firearm, my medications, other lethal means in my household, because if someone is at risk for suicide and they're thinking about acting on that, they'll find a different way. And so that holds us back in being able to move forward with key initiatives, if that's the fundamental belief that, that an individual holds. So we're trying to break that misconception, trying to educate on the facts that indeed there is research that shows Simply having access to lethal means in your house, readily available, increases your risk for suicide, regardless of anything else. So that's a a really fundamental one that's not just within the military population. That's a misconception that we see broadly across the general public, but but one that's pretty critical. The, The last two I'll highlight very quickly. The fourth misconception is the majority of individuals that die by suicide had a mental illness, and we know that's not true in our military or our civilian population, certainly again it's a factor for some folks, an important factor for some folks, but if we look at suicide and we say it's only individuals that have a mental illness, we are missing how we need to be developing strategies and programs and initiatives and policies for the broad population where suicide truly is a risk. And then the very last one on my list of misconceptions, would be, I'm often asked, how do the military suicide rates compare to the U.S. population? You often hear within the the media that the military suicide rates are much higher than the U.S. population. And in fact, that's a misconception. Once we adjust for age and sex differences between military population and the U.S. general population, we see that we're comparable when we're considering our active component service members and our reserve members. Now, we do see in our in our last year data, for instance, our uh, 2018 data, that our National Guard members do have a statistically higher uh, suicide rate compared to their U.S. Um, general population counterparts. And this isn't to say that that means that we have no challenges or issues. So it's very important that we're not just rusting and saying, oh, we're comparable to the U.S. population. That's not what I'm saying, but it, but that is a misconception out there that what's going on with the military. They're, they're so much different. Now, this is a national issue. We have, our national suicide rates are increasing. So what can we do as a, a community to come together to not only reduce suicide in our military and our veteran community, but also with across all the populations within our country?
0: You know, and, and really starting with that last one first and then and then I'd like to come back to the other four that I think a lot of people looking on the outside, they think military and veterans, everyone's lumped together. This is something really that the last numbers, how the VA has reported their numbers, previously the 20 a day included active duty and drilling guards and reserves and and so on. And, And to be honest, I don't think that I knew that exactly, that the active military rates were not higher. That's true in the veteran space, but sometimes everybody gets lumped into one and that can create complications.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, I think you're right on that. And even within this podcast, this podcast is military affiliated. It's intended to be, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but focused on not only service members, veterans, but family members, caregivers, anyone that's affiliated with that military population. When you hear many times the word military, or hear the word veteran, they are oftentimes put together. Now, certainly there are this is the same individual that is progressing along their life career, right? So they're, they're beginning in military service, and then they move into becoming a veteran and, and following that part of their career path. So there are similarities there. But then we also have our different uniquenesses that we're capitalizing on too, because our populations are different from one another.
0: And I think, again, that goes to that need for some type of flexibility, some type of, like you said, standard base. Uh, the other thing, though, regarding those misconceptions, and I think of those first four, talking about it from someone who's who's intervening in a suicide or, or trying to keep someone from taking their own life, but I also don't wonder if those misconceptions will cause someone who is experiencing a suicidal crisis, who believe those misconceptions, that keeps them from reaching out. They say, well, I never deployed. I, there's no reason for me to secure my firearm because if I just do it, this, I mean, like these misconceptions can be harmful for an individual as well as for a community.
2: Yes, I, I agree with that. As you were speaking, a, a few different examples came to my mind of different things we're trying to do to combat that. So first we are trying to educate broadly about these misconceptions and, uh, I think we all need to do that, right? That's everybody's role to to start having these conversations and correct the misconceptions that are out there. But then as we're planning particular programs, we're, we're also trying to take them into account and help not only the individuals themselves, but support providers interacting with individuals. And the example I'll give, and this is under, if we're thinking about those seven broad suicide prevention strategies for the CDC and aligned with what the, the DOD does, there's that creating protective environments strategy. And that's really focused on not just the individual, but what's happening in the environment. We know from data that suicide can be an impulsive act, that the time that an individual goes from thinking about suicide to acting on it can actually be less than 10 minutes. It can be less than five minutes for individuals. And so how do we, in an environmental way, you know, how do we help uh, support providers or folks that may be interacting with these individuals and, and educating the individuals themselves on time-based prevention efforts? What we are piloting right now is we are training providers, military one-source consultants and military family life counselors, we are training those individuals on how do you have counseling strategies about limiting accessibility to lethal means, firearms, medications, other lethal means for an individual that's at risk of suicide. How do you have those conversations? So that's just one example of a way in which we're myth-busting, or correcting misconceptions that might be present in individuals
0: you know and that's i think it would always be effective if we were to replace a lie with the truth right if we were to take a misconception we can't just say that's not the truth because then what's on the other side of the equation we need to say okay the reason that's not the truth is that there's this other thing in providing those resources and it sounds like you know the defense department overall and and the defense suicide prevention office in particular is really implementing lot of things but but how can listeners to this what action steps can they take? What can they do themselves? Right. Because everybody's like, it's great to hear about all these programs that are happening in, you know, Naval air station halfway across the country, but what can I do in my community or in my life, in my environment?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that question. The first most fundamental thing I would say is everybody plays a role in suicide prevention and that it's everybody's responsibility too. So it's not just our, behavioral health or mental health providers. It's not just our chaplains or spiritual leaders. It is you. It is me. It is our supervisor. Everybody has this role. And we can do simple things. A critical thing we can all be doing is staying connected with one another, being there for each other, checking in with each other. There's so many different mechanisms in which we can do that. The phone call, a text, doing a Zoom video, just so many options. So that's the first thing we can all do is be connected with one another. Ask if folks are doing okay. Don't be afraid to have that conversation. So if you notice that someone is acting differently compared to how they normally are, you can ask them, are you thinking of harming yourself? You know, how are you feeling these days? That's that's a great conversation to have and that will help, help open that dialogue. At the same time then, we also need to know what some of those risk factors are so we can identify them in ourselves. If, if we're noticing that we're, we're being different ourselves, you know, how do we seek support for what we're going through, but looking at that for others as well. And helping to get those individuals or yourself to help. There is still, whether we're in, talking in the military community, the veteran community, or nationally, there's still a stigma about help seeking. There's still perceived barriers to, to reaching out for support. And I would want to take the message away or share that you getting help is a sign of strength. So be there for each other and support each other and help if it's if someone's in a crisis or you're in a crisis, reach out to the veterans or military crisis line. If you're having life challenges and you're a military member or a family member, reach out to Military One Source. They have a number of wonderful resources parenting tips, relationship counseling, all free for, for family members and service members. So that's a, a great resource. You
0: know, I can uh, very much vouch for military one source. Uh, my wife and I used them for marriage counseling after my Iraq and Afghanistan tours. And if it weren't for both of those times, I likely wouldn't still be married. At that time, I was a company first sergeant and I made no doubt about it to say, hey, I'm not going to be here this afternoon because first sergeant's going to get going to his therapy, marriage counseling, what have you. And so that, that idea of being open and honest, but that connectedness, shares share it, it protects other people, but it also protects ourselves. I really appreciate you coming on today. I know this is uh, definitely a passion of yours and something that we could talk about for many, many, many hours, but I, I think that you've given listeners a lot to think about today.
2: Thank you so much. And truly a pleasure to be a part of this podcast and you're doing wonderful things and it- we all play a role. So you're playing an important role and certainly not just with this podcast, but what you do in your professional life as well. So I want to thank you, Dwayne, for for all your efforts in, in this really critical challenge.
0: Thank you.
1: This is Doc Springer. My new book, Warrior, is out. I don't always get a book endorsement, But when I do, it's from the world's most interesting man. Hello, my friends. These are difficult times that we
2: are all going through. So many people offer opinions on this COVID-19 situation, what to do, how to cope. So you don't know whose perspective to listen to. I would like to suggest to you a doctor, Dr. Shona Springer. She has worked for years with our warriors. She is extremely insightful and can give you all kinds of good information. I would like to recommend her book. It is called Warrior. It is important. There is information that can do good things for you. So I recommend it. Doc Springer, thank you. The book is called Warrior. Adios, amigos. Good health, stay well, stay isolated, but not alone. Adios.
0: really appreciative of the opportunity to be able to talk to Dr. Orvis specifically because of her role overseeing suicide prevention for the Department of Defense. I think it's an important aspect that we need to include in this conversation.
1: Yes. First, I was really excited to hear Dr. Orvis talk about the myth that exposure to combat is necessarily associated with suicide risk. As I explained in my recently published book, warrior how to support those who protect us many people in society including a fairly large number of therapists seem to think that veterans come back traumatized by what they see and do in combat and yet as dr orvis confirms here the idea that veterans die by suicide because they deploy to war zones is a misconception it's a myth a 2015 study of nearly 4 million US service members and veterans found that deployment to Iraq and Afghanistan is not associated with an increased risk for suicide. What I've personally observed over the past decade of serving service members, veterans, and their families is this there are some injuries that are even more invisible and more insidious, ultimately more lethal than the invisible wounds of war that many of us have been trained to assess and treat. For many of my patients, the hidden pain they carried came from other sources. For instance, five very common sources were childhood traumas, moral injuries, past experiences of social disconnection when entering treatment settings, feelings of alienation from their closest family members and from civilians in general, and the helpless rage and overwhelming grief of losing fellow veterans to combat, training accidents, and suicide. I'd love to see us integrate the insight that Karen shared here and engage in treatments that focus on addressing some of these areas of suffering.
0: Yeah, I agree. Obviously, uh, there is a lot of focus on PTSD, right, as the diagnosable condition, things like the medical model of mental health, TBI, definitely substance abuse and and depression and anxiety and, and emotional disorders. Uh, but what you're talking about are things that are beyond just that, right? And we've talked about this on the show before, but moral injury and the need for connectedness and our relationships, all these things are not part of the medical model of mental health, but they're aspects that we need to understand when we're working with veterans.
1: Yeah. And I think our, our healers in society are, are well positioned and capable of meaningfully addressing some of these things, even if there is no diagnosis attached to them. So for example, right now we don't have a diagnosis for moral injury, yet it was rampant among the patients that I served. And so my interest is in really uh, bringing some additional focus to some of these areas. And and honestly, if we just focus on PTSD and TBI, we, we could probably keep ourselves quite busy for a long time, but I think we would also be missing some critical things. The other thing I wanted to publicly say is just how much I've appreciated the opportunity to share my work at the VA-DOD Suicide Prevention Conference. Dr. Orvis mentioned this is a biennial conference that is hosted jointly by the VA and the DOD. And in my personal experience, conference organizers have provided a space to really think outside the box with this conference. For example, one year I gave a talk describing novel peer-to-peer support innovations or models that I've co-developed with a peer support specialist at the VA. To give a specific example, one group we offered was called Boot Camp Stories. The focus of the group was to help veterans engage in VA mental health care. So we started the group by sharing stories about boot camp, since veterans often bond around stories, remembering how they were treated when they entered into military service and were initiated into the tribe. We also used a lot of humor to engage them and to build the trust. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of treating veterans delicately or in such an intentionally careful way that this actually heightens the cultural disconnect that they feel with us as treatment providers. There's a difference between treating them with respect, which is critical, and treating them delicately, which is alienating. Humor and irreverence actually makes many veterans feel safer it's how they bond with each other in the military. Speaking for myself, I had to do a lot of work to get comfortable using humor because like many behavioral health providers, I was trained in a fairly traditional way to be clinically detached, to be non-disclosing, and to resist being irreverent. In the Boot Camp Stories group, we also explicitly analyze common underlying values in military service and in mental health care settings. For example, in military settings, every action is judged. But for many therapists, we would say no one is here to judge you. A second specific example is that maybe in the military, people are, are told to do as you are told. While in therapy, a provider might encourage a patient to think critically about what you're told. Sometimes the two sets of values actually converge in some interesting and underappreciated ways that can help us better facilitate better engagement and treatment. I'm very grateful that the VA DOD conference has been a place where I've been allowed to share some of the areas where I've been innovating in specific ways in close partnership with those who have served in the military.
0: There are a lot of things in there that I, I definitely agree with and in, in a lot of the similarities. I was actually just having a conversation with a client yesterday about his use of humor and, and even harsh humor, pretending or feigning anger when he wasn't really angry, sort of like going in the motor pole, what's going on here? Whereas yeah. <laughs> his spouse was reacting to the anger instead of the intent of the anger. Right. So having this discussion of when is the, when is the, the humor that we use, the dark humor or the rough humor, um, when is that appropriate versus when it is not. And I think those are some examples of what you're talking about, no longer yeah. needing to, follow the rules all the time or do what you're told. Or some of this is when I talk to my clients is talking about how that was appropriate in that environment. So how do we then transition to a different environment where this other thing is also true, right? So the other thing of then you used to just not question anything. Now you can question it because you're no longer in that old environment. And I think therapists have a significant role in helping us veterans transition psychologically rather than just physically leaving the military
1: absolutely and i also think that it's on us to adapt as well that instead of you know asking our patients to kind of come in our direction and adapt to maybe the cultural mores that we hold that maybe there's room for us to also kind of be a little bit more relaxed and use a little bit of humor to adapt to the culture of those we serve as well and i think we can do a lot to overcome that by also adapting our practice a bit in their direction
0: i think that flexibility on both sides absolutely is key but we uh, can't expect someone who's on the other side of the gap to come all the way to our side of the gap we need to build a bridge and, and meet in the middle So thank you everybody for joining us once again to listen to a great conversation about what do we do about suicide. Make sure to check out the show notes at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS22 where you can get links to the things we talked about on this episode as well as on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions or let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James by going to veteranmentalhealth.com by going to bettermentalhealth.com forward slash group.
1: Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Duane and I are mental health professionals, we're not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician.
0: You can find out more about the work that Shauna's doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing one, chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.